Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Alechem Shalom. Now let's try that again. Ready? Shalom Alechem. All right, I heard a few, but some of you sound a little too Gentile. The accent is on the in Alechem. And we certainly bring you a peace that surpasses all understanding. As you've heard, our mission's been in Philadelphia, Hananiel Ministries. That means God is gracious. It's been in Philadelphia since, well, 1911. Uh, we haven't been there quite that long. But God has allowed us to serve there since 1991. And by the way, right around the time we started Haniel, it was when we first became associated with this church. I noticed in my records, it's been 29 years, 1990, when Pastor Kevin Morris was here as pastor. He invited me for a missions conference. My wife told me to mention that. It's been 29 years. She also told me to mention that it's, that it's safe to be around me. Uh, it's been two weeks that I've been dealing with if you can hear it in my voice, uh, I had a head cold, it's congestion and coughing, so if I start to cough, it, I'll, I'll, I'll duck. But I just, <laughs> you better duck. <laughs> but I'm still struggling with that in my voice, if you can tell. Uh, our ministry, obviously, is a ministry, it has been traditionally a, an outreach to the Jewish community in Philadelphia, but since the early 90s, we've actually been a specific ministry to reach the uh, Jewish people who've come from the former Soviet Union. And so back in the spring, we had our annual Passover banquet with them. We had uh, 80-some people, and five of them made a profession of faith in the Lord. In the fall, we always have our Fall Feast of Israel, and when we celebrated uh, Rosh Hashanah, I say that properly because in Philadelphia it sounds more like Rosh Hashanah. We celebrated the Feast of Trumpets, a picture of the rapture of the church. And when I talked and shared that with them at the conclusion, I gave an invitation and two people came to know the Lord, one woman and a very, very special man. It was the first time he ever came to one of our services and he just happened to be the father of my daughter-in-law, who's my translator every Friday night. She translates everything I say from English into Russian for them, and so she was absolutely thrilled that her father came to know the Lord as his savior. Um, this morning, we've already heard, um, uh, guide me, O thou great Jehovah, and when we sang the God of Abraham praise, we heard Jehovah, the great I am, and Sharon just sang a song called Jehovah God, and the, the funny thing is this title, this message, and by the way, does everybody have a copy of the notes? If you don't, raise your hand. Can we get them to them if anybody needs? Everybody has one. Awesome. How about this for some heresy? You won't even need your Bible today. The reason is all your scriptures are right here, just to make it convenient for everyone. Uh, but uh, one of the things that is, is so ironic about this title of this message is the Abrahamic Covenant, the proof of resurrection, but it also could be subtitled Jehovah, the God who keeps his promises. The interesting thing is, as a bit, a bit of an introduction to this message, I want to share with you what God's personal name is. I'm sure most of you know that that's God's name, Jehovah. But in reality, that's not true. Uh, there is no J in Hebrew. It's a Y. 
and it would be pronounced Yehovah. And the irony of that is that uh, we, 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 we call it Jehovah, the God of, who keeps his promises, but in reality, it's important to understand what that name means. And so I want to lay that groundwork for you. In Hebrew, there are no, technically in the original text, there were no vowels whatsoever. It's only consonants. And it would be a yod, a he, a vov, and a he that would be God's personal name. That's what he identified himself as. It's pronounced, and that over the years, uh, we've come out with Yahweh sometimes, or another one would be Jehovah, but the Jewish people themselves do not dare ever say the personal name of God. As a matter of fact, many of your English Bibles, and for example, in the King James, whenever you come to God's personal name, it'll have in capital letters, Lord. And that's because the Jewish people would substitute the word Adonai because they don't want to dare mispronounce God's name. So they'll either call him Adonai or Lord, or they'll just say in Hebrew, Hashem, the name, because they don't want to dare mispronounce it. However, it's important to understand exactly where the name comes from. The, the, the last three letters, it would be in English, Y-H-V-H, and the last three letters, the Hava part, is the same word that would be the name for uh, Adam's wife, Hava, or Eve. And the reason she was called Eve is because she was the mother of what? All living. And so the, God's name, God's personal name, and when you put that Y in front of it, that means it's first person and it's also future. And it really doesn't well, translate well into English because what God's name actually means is, I will actively be alive. See, because I can say, I live, can't I? But that's very passive. I don't know when that's going to end. But God, when he said, his name means, I am self-existent. I will always be there. I will always, and that's a great thing to know, isn't it? Especially when he makes promises. He am always going to be there. He am never going to forget. And he am going to, and his character will be at stake as we also will see through this message. So the name boils down to, instead of just, I will live or I will be alive, they just boil it down to, I am. And that's what his name means. I am and he always will be there. Well, there was a group of people in the days that Yeshua was here on earth, Jesus, when he walked the earth, and they were called the Sadducees. In Christianity, we would call them the very liberal segment of Christianity. Among the Jewish community, they were also the very liberal group who had a problem believing in angels, and they didn't believe in resurrection, and so they weren't always authoritatively accurate as far as accepting what the Scriptures teach. And they came with a situation to present before Jesus that they thought would be a trick question for him because they didn't believe in a resurrection, so they had this scenario, if you will. If you look in your text at Matthew 23-33, we'll, we'll lay this foundation for you. I'll just read the first paragraph because that will give you the scenario. The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection, and they asked him, saying, Master, I'm going to adjust that. That, that Hebrew word would be rabbi. But I, see, I, I, I detect a, how do I put it, a sarcasm in the tone of their voice, even though you can't read that in the text. It's, uh, rabbi, 
Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother will marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now, by the way, I put that reference there, Deuteronomy. What they're referring to is a point in the law. That's interesting. Now they're going to use the Scripture. But they use a Scripture verse to bring out a situation where it does say under the law, there you have it right there, the law of the Sadducees were quoting there in your notes. It says, If brethren dwell together and one of them die and he has no child, the wife of the dead man will now marry with, will not marry a stranger, but instead her, she will marry her husband's brother, and he will go into her and take to her to him to a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. And it will be that that baby, that firstborn which she bears, will succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name is not put out of Israel. In other words, so his name doesn't get blotted out in Israel, so he doesn't lose his land inheritance. That was what it did under the law. You would, the, the baby that would be born to the next oldest brother in the household would be, be actually in, in the name of the older brother who already passed away. Has everybody got the idea of what the law was re- asking for? So that's what they're, they're doing. They're quoting that law to Jesus. And then in verse 25 it says, Now there was with us seven brothers, seven brethren, and the first, when he married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, and having no children, he left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, all the way down to the seventh brother. And last of all, the woman died also. Here's their question for Jesus. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? For they all had her. Do you understand the reasoning for the question? They're saying in the resurrection, there, would be, there can't be a resurrection because if there was, there would be confusion. Do you follow? Because this woman has had seven husbands. Whose wife would she be of the seven? That was their question. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? For they all had her. When I first read this passage, that wasn't my first question. My first question is, what in the world is this woman doing to her husbands every time she gets married to them? I think somebody ought to be checking insurance policies. They would have a grand jury investigation to find out what she's actually doing, because every time somebody marries her, they're dead. And last of all, the woman died also. There was a great sigh of relief in Israel at that time. Uh, They know that this black widow is not going to be with us any longer. She's going to knock off every husband that she has. Um, But you realize what they're, they're, they're presenting is, whose wife would she be of the seven? For they all had her. I love Jesus' answer because he's going to take it one step beyond their, their simple question and he's going to take it to a new level, as he always does. Jesus answered and said unto them, and I underlined it so you can see it yourself, you do err not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. Say that again with me. You do err not knowing the Scriptures nor the power. What, was, what did Yeshua refer to? What was his authority? Then he gave credit to the Scriptures, and that's something that we need to remember ourselves. He says, you error not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now, the, the simple question. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. So what he's saying is, listen, when you're raised from the dead, you're going to be in a body incorruptible. Amen? 
It's going to last forever. There won't be any need for reproduction any longer because we'll be like the angels. We have a body that lasts forever. So that's what he's saying. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but we're like the angels of God in heaven. I, I shared this message one time and I said, so you realize that basically that what it's saying is there, we'll know who, who each other are, but we'll be married to the Lord. There won't be any husband and wife relationship in the kingdom. And I gave this message in Brookhaven, Pennsylvania years ago. And when I came out with that line, I said, there won't be any husband and wife relationship in the kingdom. A male voice from the back of the auditorium went, Amen! <laughs> Apparently, he's looking forward to the resurrection so he doesn't have to spend any more time with his wife. But after, I was the only, when he said it, nobody laughed, but I did. And I'm so, don't you realize what he's saying? The lady, ladies of the church came up to me afterwards and said, that she should have been the one that said amen. We know what he's like. Well, the simple question is, there's, you don't, there's no problem with the resurrection because we're married to the Lord in reality. But then the next phrase is, very crucial in our understanding how this message will flow this morning. Verse 31. As touching the resurrection from the dead. What Jesus is basically saying is, like if I could put it in today's vernacular, as to whether or not there has to be a resurrection from the dead. In other words, what he's about to share with you is about to say, he's about to prove that there has to be a resurrection. In other words, you understand what he's doing? He's not just answering their simple question. He's taking it to a new level by trying to give them information that they should recognize that there has to be a resurrection from the dead. Are you with me? Okay. As touching the resurrection from the dead, have you not what? Read. There you go. You err not knowing the Scriptures. Have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying... What? I am. By the way, that's God's personal name. yod heh vav heh I am. Remember Jesus, on one, on, in one instance, He says, before Abraham was, what did He say? I am. They knew He was referring to them. They wanted to stone Him because He was associating Himself with God and of course that He was even before Abraham. I am, what? The God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now mind you, when I read that, I realize that what Jesus is trying to do is prove that there has to be a resurrection. But just from reading that verse, that's not going to come to you. As a matter of fact, from my former manner of religion, I didn't, know, I didn't understand a whole lot about prophecy. And I under, always thought that the good people went to heaven and the bad people went to hell. And... What he's saying is, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, that means you know, they're in heaven up there somewhere with God. Well, how does that prove resurrection by him saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He's saying that because he's trying to prove resurrection. I erred not knowing the scriptures, and I'd like to share them with you for a moment now. For one moment... You'll never hear this from a pulpit here at this church ever again. I'm going to ask you to be earthly-minded. The reason for that, remember, you're, we're, we're, our citizenship is where? And we're supposed to have 
have heavenly things, spiritual things. Our focus is to be there, but for just this message, I want you to think real estate deal. I want you to think land, and I really want you to think earthly because God made promises. Beginning in uh, Genesis 12.1, God promised Abraham a land. In chapter 12, verse 1, now the Lord, do you see it capitalized? That means it was now Jehovah. That was his name, Yahavah, to be technically correct. Yahavah had said to Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, what? Unto a what? A land that I will show you. In Genesis 13, in the next chapter, Jehovah said to Abraham, after Lot was separated from him, Lift up now your eyes and look from the place where you are, north, south, east, and west, for all the land which you see, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed, how long? Forever. I'll I'll save you some time. We're going to find out later that that's the promised land, the nation of Israel, if you will. So this was the first Holy Land tour. God took Abraham. Never mind. It's early in the morning. For all the land which you see, to you will I give it, and to your seed forever. And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall your seed be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it to you. Now, so far, we only know it was all the land he could see, north, south, east, and west. But now in Genesis 15, we're going to get more specifics. The borders of the land. In Genesis 15, 18, it says, In the same day, Jehovah, Yahovah, made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, where are the borders? From the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. There's a question about the southern portion. Is that talking about the river of Egypt as the Nile? Or is there's another area a little further north as you move towards Israel called the Wadi El Arish, which means the brook or river of Egypt? Doesn't matter. I know the northern border is very secure. It's the river Euphrates up by Iraq. Is Israel in that land today, by the way? And if they tried to go over there and tell them that God told us our land, you know what would happen. There would be a battle. (laughs) But I want you to know that that's the piece of real estate that was promised to Abraham. Just one man. By the way, that's a personal promise. Do you believe that God can keep personal promises to individuals? You better hope so. You have the promise of a personal Savior, don't you? And a personal relationship with Him. And he made a personal promise to this man, Abraham, telling him that from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, I'm going to give you that land forever. Well, Abraham had many sons, as that little song tells us, but the land that was going to be promised is going to be to one of his sons. The son is named Isaac. In Genesis 26, 2-3, the Lord, once again, that's Jehovah, Yehovah appeared to him and said, Go not down into Egypt. Dwell in the land which I tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For unto you and your seed I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath that I swore unto Abraham your father. So now two people have been promised that piece of real estate from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. That's Abraham and Isaac. Correct? Well, 
Isaac has Esau and Jacob, but it's not going to be a promise to Esau. It's going to be a promise to Jacob. In Genesis 28, the third person who gets this promise of this piece of real estate is Jacob in Genesis 28, 10-15. Jacob went out from Beersheba and went unto Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night. By the way, I always love the way the King James uses that phrase, lighted upon a place. It talks about Ruth doing that too in the book of Ruth, that she lighted upon a field that belonged to Boaz. I don't know how you do that. I heavy. I don't light across the field. And I don't know how Jacob lighted, but it means that he walked or he, he, he sojourned unto that place. He lighted upon a certain place and he tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took the stones of that place and put them down for pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, Jehovah stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land where you lie, to you will I give it and to your seed. Now this is the third person and his ancestry that had been promised that piece of real estate. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by the way, Jacob's name is later changed to Israel. And Israel is the seed from where Jacob comes from. And the people who are given the promise of that piece of real estate. And your seed will be as the dust of the earth and you'll spread abroad to the west, to the east, the north and the south. In you and your seed will all the families of the earth be blessed. And we as believers can say thank you to that promise. Verse 15, And behold, I love this line, He said to Jacob, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you in all places whither you go, and I'll bring you again into this land. For I will not leave you until I have done that which I have spoken to you of. You understand what God's saying? I won't let that promise go away. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their seed were promised a piece of real estate from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. They all passed away. And I'm just going to give you a big hint as to what's coming up. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never fully owned and occupied all the land that God promised to give them. As a matter of fact, the most that Abraham had were a few wells and a cave to bury Sarah in that he had to purchase in the land that was given to him as a promise. As a matter of fact, well after they're dead, when Moses comes on the scene, God's going to remind him of this. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am Yahweh, I am Jehovah. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of El Shaddai, or God Almighty. But my name, Yahweh, Jehovah, was I not known or made known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were only strangers in a land that I promised to give them. This verse, I want you to know, is, is crucial for a lot of reasons. Um, there's a, there's a, I, I don't want to even call them believers. There, there's, there's those who do not believe in a literal interpretation of Scripture. And they come to this passage, 
and they came up with a theory that there's a problem here. Because God says, by my name Jehovah, was I not known to them. As a matter of fact, um, we got proof that, that that actually took place in several places. Look what I wrote down there, not known. They, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't know the name Jehovah. In Genesis 15, 7-8, he said unto them, the Lord himself said, I am Jehovah. He says that to Abraham, that brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, and Abraham says back to God, Lord Jehovah, the God is capitalized because that is God's personal name there in the Hebrew text. Whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Well, that word know is the same word in Exodus 6.3 up there above. And it's the same word in Genesis 4.1 where it says that Adam knew Eve his wife, and you knew by that afterwards that the result of that was that they had children. It's know in a very personal and very intimate way. But I want you to know that people reading that say, oh, oh, by the way, there's other passages like Genesis 13.4, 13.18, and 14.22. All of them, God identifies himself as Jehovah to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So somebody reading this verse in Exodus 6.3 says, look, it says, I, I appeared to them by the name of Jehovah. I was not known to them. There's a mistake in the Scripture. They did know it. They heard it. What do you do with that? Well, the problem is this. God is not saying that they never heard my name. He's saying by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. In other words, when God, when even when Jesus says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and God of Jacob, that's the covenantal formula for the Abrahamic covenant that God made a promise to those three men and he put his name on the promise. And since they haven't had it fulfilled yet, God's reminding them that it still has to take place in the future. You see, there's the, the people that don't believe that, the, the people that believe that there's an error in the scripture, they came up with this wild theory. It's called the JEPD theory. There, because there is a mistake there, there must have been multiple authors of the Torah, of the, of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. They came up, there must have been a Jehovah writer, that's the J part, and he didn't know, and the guy that wrote about God, Elohim, he didn't know about the Jehovah lines, and so that's why there's a mistake there. And then they added a P, they, they, they also said, there must have been four different authors because they also had Leviticus, so that's the, been a priest that must have wrote that, and a guy that wrote Deuteronomy, that's the D. They believe that they're, instead of believing that Moses wrote, was the author of the entire thing, they came up with this theory that because there's a mistake here in Exodus 6, there must have been multiple authors. God never said he didn't say his name. He didn't say that they never heard his name, but the promises that go with his name, they have never realized to this day, even now, as I'm speaking to you. Do you understand? They, by my name, Jehovah, was I not known to them in fulfillment of the promises that he just told them in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their seed after them. And by the way, Exodus 6 says, and I will bring you, talking to Moses, 
into the land concerning which I did swear to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for heritage because I am Jehovah. I can't stress this enough. There's a reminder of this even in the days of King David that that promise to this day, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the nation of Israel has never fully owned or occupied all the land that God promised to them back in this passage. By the way, those that don't believe in a future for the nation of Israel don't like this message because it's going to have to require a fulfillment earthly-wise in the future. We'll get to that in a moment. A reminder in the days of King David, Psalm 105, verses 8 to 12, long after Moses is dead as well. He has remembered his covenant forever and the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac, and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, What? Unto thee will I give the land of Canaan, the lot of your inheritance, when they were only a few men in number, yea, very few, and what? Strangers in it. Amen. As I told you before, the Jewish people don't dare pronounce God's name out of respect of not wanting to mispronounce His name. It's, it's hard to know that. It's, it's just a yod heh vav heh. I believe the proper pronunciation is Yahavah. But they would not do that. They would just say the name. So they have a great deal of respect for God's name. And, and well, that's wonderful that they do. But do you know that God Himself values something more important than His own name? Look at Psalm 138, verse 2. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified what? You have magnified your word above all your name. Do you realize what, God, what that's saying? God values what he says more important than his own name. Even though he puts his name on those promises. I don't know how else to express this to you because, well, making a promise, uh, this, this sound familiar? Do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth so help you? We always swear by a greater, don't we? In Hebrews 6, God can't really do that because he can't swear anything greater than himself because he's it. In Hebrews 6, 13-19, when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he received the promise. That was the promise of having multiplied seed. And, in, with the, um, and his seed will all nations, of the, uh, nations be blessed but the land was not part of that promise yet. For men verily swear by the greater an oath of confirmation to them that end all strife, wherein God willingly more abundantly to show forth the heirs of promise, the immutability, the unchangeability of his counsel, he confirms it with an oath, that by two immutable things it was impossible for God to lie. What does it say there? It's impossible, what? That God would lie. We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge and to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have is an anchor for the soul. 
Because if God made us promises, isn't he going to keep them? I don't know how else to put it to you, but maybe if I go back a hundred years or so, and the villages maybe even here in the United States were a lot smaller, and there was men who had jobs and occupations. I know that that one of the my in my wife's family, uh, her grandfather was a plumber, and two, three, all three of her sons were plumbers. One of the sons uh, has since passed away. One of the sons, the grandfather was very upset with because he cheated. He cut corners when he did his plumbing jobs, and he gave him a what for? Why? Because you know what it says on the side of that truck. Parcel Plumbing. That's my name, too. At one time, you didn't have to draw up a contract when you had to get somebody to come in and do the work. Why? Because all you needed to do was what? Handshake. Handshake. Because if you didn't, everybody in the neighborhood, everyone in the community would know that you were a cheater. Everyone would know that you're a a man of, of a bad reputation and you bring a disdain upon that name. Now you have to get a lawyer to even to interpret the contract when the guy doesn't come and finish the work or he does it inappropriately. He took cut corners, so to speak. When God swears, he puts his own name on the promise and it kind of works hand in hand. His name means I am. And I said this earlier. That means, let me give an example. If Harry Barr wants to borrow, if I want to borrow $5 from Harry and he gives me $5 and then I pass away, he's out $5. Oops, sorry, Harry. But God's name means I am. He am always going to be there. He am always going to remember his promises. More importantly, his name's at stake. God's character is at stake. And I've said this for years. The scriptures are wonderful, and I, that's where I find my truth and what I believe. But you know what? That book is useless. If the God who made the promises that are recorded in that book has no character, and he can lie. Our God can't lie. And therefore, the promises that he makes when he says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You can bank on it because my faith is not my ability to do anything right or wrong. My faith is in God's ability to keep his promises and he's a God of, char- he's a God of character. And that's the, the whole basis for you even reading the scripture is that your God is a God who keeps his promises. Therefore, return to the first page again. As touching the resurrection from the dead, have you not read which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but the living. The people were there that day. They knew what he was saying. Those three men have all died not having received the promise. In order for God to vindicate himself in the future, He's just going to have to raise them, those three men, and give them all the land that they're promised and the nation of Israel in all the land that I promised, or God will be found to be a liar. And that's not possible. Those that believe in replacement theology, like I said, don't like this message because that requires an earthly kingdom reign when the Lord comes back to establish that. As a matter of fact, look at Matthew 8 on the second page. 
because they died not having received the land promise, in order for God to vindicate Himself, they will have to be raised from the dead and given that land or God will be found to be a liar. That's why Jesus said what He did. And that's why also He reminds us in Matthew 8.11, And I say unto you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with who? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's the kingdom of heaven when it comes to earth. I did that message a few years back. The kingdom of heaven is at hand where I definitely demonstrated how there has to be an earthly kingdom reign in order for God to fulfill all the promises. You know, the earthly kingdom is, is, is prophesied all over in the Old Testament. The only thing the New Testament added to that was how long it was going to be in the book of Revelation. It's going to be a thousand years, a messianic kingdom or a messianic reign. I call it the front porch of eternity. It's required. There's four unconditional covenants that God made with Israel that still have a portion to them left unfulfilled. This is one of them. The land has to be given to them and that will require a physical fulfillment on this earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As it is in heaven, the kingdom of heaven will be coming to the earth when the Lord physically returns to the earth someday. That's why Jesus said that many will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. And by the way, at that time as well, the uh, nation of Israel is also prophesied of getting the fulfillment of that piece of real estate as we read in Isaiah 27, 12 at the bottom. And it'll come to pass in that day that Jehovah will beat off from the channel of the river, that's the Euphrates, unto the where? The stream or the river of Egypt. And you'll be gathered one by one, who? Oh, you children of Israel. That, by the, by the way, if you put it in its context in Isaiah 27, it's talking about the Lord at the second advent. By the way, not only will the Lord be king uh, to fulfill the promise that was told to Mary when he was born. Uh, remember what Mary was told? He will sit upon the throne of his father, David. Yes. Well, that, did that ever happen at his first coming? The only throne that David ever sat on was an earthly kingdom throne over Israel. Jesus will do that when he returns and he sits and reigns for a thousand years in Jerusalem. But his extent will even be beyond the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, we're told in Zechariah 9.10. I will cut off from the chariot of Ephraim and the horse of Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and will speak peace unto the heathen. And his dominion will be from the sea to sea and from the river from the Euphrates River to where? And Zechariah also tells me, and the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. Notice how the scripture always comes together and fulfills itself. My conclusion to this message is this. I have a God who's promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Israel a piece of real estate. Will he fulfill that to those three men personally? Amen. And the nation? You better believe it because that's the same God whose character is at stake when he promised you and I everlasting life. And I'm so thankful that my faith is based upon a God who keeps his promises. Let us pray.